I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. So I am delighted to welcome today my friend, my former colleague, Robin Sundaram. He is a special man, and I am really, really looking forward to our discussion and looking forward to introducing him. So Robin was born in Sri Lanka and raised in the UK. He was the child of classic immigrant parents, and his father was a linchpin of the Tamil community, where people would come to him for advice and guidance, and they started with nothing and worked their way up from there. Robin describes himself as a child of the swinging 60s, so that gives you a hint on his age, of which he is justifiably proud because I can tell you he does not look his age. (laughs) He graduated from the University of Leicester with a BSc in economics and spent his early career working with retailers like Marks & Spencer and Safeway, overseeing programs like Safeway's Supplier Development Program. He joined Nestle UK in 1995 and helped set up and drive Nestle UK's supply chain collaboration program with key retailers. We'll talk about what exactly that means in case you have no idea what a supply chain collaboration program is or means. And since then, he's spent time in various commercial and supply chain roles within Nestle. So the thing that really focuses our conversation today is the fact that he moved to Nestle UK and Ireland procurement team in 2011 and leads their implementation of global responsible sourcing guidelines and approach. A lot of that involves working with suppliers, meaning milk farmers, dairy farmers, things like that. And this is actually where I have the greatest admiration for Robin and his values and his drive and his work. So through his role, he's helped develop a full sustainability strategy for Nestle UK and Ireland's milk sourcing, which is in the UK and Ireland, aimed at helping UK dairy farmers reduce their environmental impact and increase the quality and volume of milk supply. He also works across the business globally to support others in implementing responsible sourcing of coffee, palm oil, sugar, cocoa, and other key commodities procured by the business. And we're talking about the world's biggest food company. So that's a lot of power done by somebody who is really driven by values. And one of my favorite examples of how big business isn't necessarily bad is how Nestle works with its cocoa farmers on the cocoa plan because they have such power and control over their own supply chain. And they realize that if you don't take care of your supply chain, you don't take care of your farmers and their communities and their environmental impact, you don't really have a supply chain and you can't make the things you need to make. So keeping that in mind, we're going to have an interesting discussion. So some of my favorite things Robin has done, Robin, I'm just such a fan. This is coming through clearly. But you've established an internal training program, Farm to Fork, which helps employees add value and drive sustainable sourcing through their own roles. And when I worked at Nestle, this kind of stuff was just absolutely wonderful to witness and be part of. So during his time as responsible sourcing manager, Nestle UK and Ireland have won or been shortlisted for several prestigious industry awards for responsible sourcing. And I recall dragging Robin to a round table with the then Home Secretary, Theresa May, and about oh, three other UK ministers to discuss the, the shaping of the Modern Slavery Act. So it was in consultation. And I just always delighted in 
taking Robin out and letting him tell the good stories because this will be far from a fluff piece about Nestle, lest anybody's worried and wants to switch off now. We're going to sit with some discomfort because obviously we know the reputational issues Nestle has had in the past. And I did my my uh, own homework before going to work there. And it's a big company. So there's always going to be something happening on the other side of the world that isn't necessarily ideal. But it's good to remember that there are people like Robin in all businesses, and that there's a lot of capacity to do a lot of good. So let's sit with some discomfort. Welcome, Robin. Thanks, Betsy, for for that introduction. Uh, It's really great to catch up. It's been a while since we have. And uh, I just want to congratulate you on these podcasts. I've listened to a few of them now, and I imagine uh, when you kicked off at the beginning, you must have gone through a bit of discomfort first time you did it. Oh, I'm still going through discomfort, Robin. I can tell you that right now. (laughs) It's very uncomfortable to be yourself on the internet. I tell you, it's not what I've been trained to do at all. Yeah, yeah. impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So as you know from listening to some, some episodes, I always ask the same question first off, which is what's an uncomfortable moment that has changed your life, that shaped who you are and what you do in the world? Okay. Yeah. Um, when you, when you said you were going to ask me that question, I, I, I sort of stopped and thought, and the first thing that went through in my mind actually is I do everything I can to avoid discomfort. That was the first thing that went through my mind. Um, but then when I stopped and I re- kind of reflected on my, on, I suppose, my life to date, I actually realized I've been through quite a lot of discomfort uh, and, and made some uh, uncomfortable decisions and, and maybe um, uh, and had, had to have some uncomfortable discussions. I think most people do in their lives and actually has probably more happened than I realized. And I think sometimes, I mean, comfort, from my perspective, sort of these sort of uncomfortable situations that you're in, sometimes they're of your own making. You choose, you choose to go that way. And sometimes they kind of happen to you. And it's about how you react as a person to those situations. And I think the main one that comes to me is in the early 90s, I'd uh, left. So I'd, I left university and I had all these great ideas to to become like maybe a businessman or something. And I'd done economics, as you said earlier. And my parents were really keen that I get into accountancy. So I kind of sort of fell into it and uh, joined Price Waterhouse, which was a, a great company. And my parents were very proud of me doing that, and, uh, as was the Sri Lankan community, because it was always, oh, you've got to be a doctor or you've got to be an accountant or you've got to be a lawyer. So I was going to be an accountant at this big, prestigious firm. And then uh, I des- I kind of decided that it wasn't really for me. It just wasn't working. And uh, and I wanted to go into a business that actually where you could you could taste and feel the product. And I ended up at Marks and Spencers. And uh, I was a bit. I knew my parents wouldn't be wouldn't approve, so I didn't really tell them uh, that I was doing it until I'd got the job. And uh, and I moved. But uh, after four months, I got made redundant. And that was, I think, that was the the first real uncomfortable feeling. I think I properly had in my life because up to that point things had gone pretty normally you know, obviously I'd had a and this may be a topic we can come back to later you know being a, an Asian kid growing up in London at the height of the the, the national front and the, the BNP and I'd been you know I used to get picked on for because of my color and, and and all of that so clearly I've been through quite a lot of discomfort in terms of that but in terms of I suppose schooling and career and um 
academic advancement i hadn't really had any issues and then suddenly bang i was uh, i was out of work and uh, yeah how i reacted to that i i think is probably um uh, has probably helped me because i think one of the first things i realized actually is it's and again i mean many people will tell you this who've been through uh, situations that are outside of your control is actually is how you respond is within your control and mm. and uh, yeah, and it also helps to have really good friends and family. And I had, you know, my my friends to this day amazing, and they kind of let me stay on the floor in their house in Putney, and uh, you know, so I didn't have any rent to pay and all of that. And I was still having that kind of almost uh, you know young early twenties lifestyle with all my friends, uh, but also able to look for a job as well. But um, but yeah, I kind of that I realised quickly that I I you know I just I needed to just find work and really work hard and if I worked hard then I can um I could probably start to make my way up so I got a job at Safeway and it was a very you know low level job and it was involved um some uh, quite quite a lot of drudgery I guess um but that's that's what I did just to start to work my work my way up I kind of took you know I I, I guess pride I I, I didn't yeah, I didn't let pride get in the way of me taking that job is and that was something my my values from my you know when I uh, uh, when I was growing up from from what my dad um, and my mum taught us, uh, which um, I can go into if you would like. Yeah, because that is well, it's when life throws you off your path that you thought you had mapped out and planned and you were on your way. That's often you look back and you see that those are the moments that really put you on your true path rather than the one that you thought you were on or the one that you thought you were supposed to be on and kind of rather than being on that make your immigrant community parents proud by being an accountant you you got thrown off your path but how did you yeah how did you find your true path how did that kind of highlight the values that you've been taught yeah i mean so yeah I mean, Initially, as I said, really just had to get a job because I had to be able to pay to uh, pay to live. And and the job at Safeway, as I said, was um, uh, it was it was quite hard work. But the what my dad, uh, particularly my dad and my mum, sort of taught me uh, when we were growing up is we were immigrants and we were uh, in a country that we didn't really know. And uh, at the time, you know, in the 60s and early 70s, it could be quite tough. And um, those kind of, I suppose, uh, discussions that you would, that we have nowadays about, you know, uh, interracial marriages, for instance, you know, I'm married to a a white person, uh, and just generally, um, talking about you know black lives matter all that kind of thing that we we're kind of getting used to now back then you just you know there was none of that conversation mm-hmm. at all and so my my dad was very much like you've got to make sure that you fit in and you've got to just work really hard and you've got to make people realize that um it, ultimately the color of your skin doesn't matter and uh, you know and, and anything else it's if you if you if you just stick to the, the really really important things like for instance be really really polite Say say your thank yous, say your pleases, and really just get on with people and treat people how you would like to be treated. That is is the you know best start in life that you can have. And uh, and, and funny enough, that's just brought back a story. I remember when I first started at MNS, I, uh, I I used to I was working at the the store in Dover, and in the um, in the staff restaurant every day, I seemed to get my my plate just seemed to be a bit fuller than uh, than everyone else's. 
And <laughs> and when after when I on the day I got made redundant, I went around saying my goodbyes. And so I went to say goodbye to the staff in the in the staff restaurant, and they and they basically said uh, because you smiled all the time and you're so polite, we always gave you more food. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> and I'd com- I'd completely forgot about that. That's come back to me after thirty years or whatever. But um, yeah. but yeah, and. Um, uh, and so, and also, you know, uh, my dad was, as as you said earlier, a linchpin of the community, and he really, uh, he was one of the first Sri Lankans to come over, Sri Lankan Tamils, and when when and he would uh, make sure that there was a room available in our house. It was a small house. I've got three younger brothers. We were pretty squashed in, but he always made sure that there was a room available for um, uh, students who came over from Sri Lanka. And often there'd be two of them squashed in a room together, but he always looked out for them and and that kind of value of looking out for other people uh is also something that you know maybe we'll come on to when talking about my mm-hmm. my role now but um that was a, a key value that um uh, really has has stuck with me but uh it also when i when i was at so sorry i'm kind of going around a bit but when i started that job at safeway it was also an eye-opener for me because it was because it was a relatively low-level job i was surrounded by people who didn't have degrees often didn't didn't you know had very minimal uh, qualifications and i was able to really get on with them and i was able to uh, and it was what i liked about safer one of the things i liked about them is it didn't really matter your background or really where, what your uh, connections were like if you did a good job you could get promoted and there were some of the people the senior people that i used to work for were people that made their way up in the business and that kind of social mobility I think has got much harder over the last few years and that's another key sort of driver for me probably more so than anything else is how can what can I do personally to help level the playing field in this country we're the second worst country in Europe for social mobility and and so just because you were born in a certain postcode in a certain part of town and you don't have access to the networks that maybe other people have got, it, that can really, really determine how your life pans out. And if there's anything I can do to, to help that, then I, then I will. And that's where some of the procurement stuff that I'm working on now is at, in terms of like working with social enterprises, that kind of thing is, is all focused around really how can we help level that playing field. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful to actually hear the story behind why the work you do is the work you do, but also how you have driven it. You know, it, it wasn't always established. It wasn't always a really core part of the business. And to know that, I'm really hoping that this does actually make people pause and think as they listen to this, that this human being who is quite important in procuring really huge amounts of products uh, from farmers in the UK, farmers around the world, and influences the world's biggest food company and the way it buys things is coming from where you're coming from. I really want that to maybe make people uncomfortable to pause because I know, you know, I'm an activist and I know that it's really easy for people to make assumptions about sort of the facelessness, the lack of personality of big businesses or term them evil, but actually to just remember that there are real people trying to do some good where they can and actually truly doing some good work is possibly uncomfortable, but actually really positive. It's a great, it's a great antidote to a lot of the news we see because the good news never makes the news, right? But yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's beautiful. So I guess that brings me 
really easily to the question of how do you take those values and navigate moments when there there is discomfort between maybe what you need to do to meet a deadline or procure something or meet a business objective while also staying aligned with your values in your work? Yeah, no, it, that's a good question. But I think you you gave some of the answer right there, actually, Betsy, when you said any company is just made up of individuals and we are ultimately, we're all consumers. We are all citizens. And I like to think of myself as a, a global citizen like like you do. And and actually being in a global company, that actually makes it easier because it, it, we have people in the company that from pretty much every country in the world. And actually, it gives you access to uh, viewpoints, cultures that you wouldn't necessarily get if you were in a, in a company that's smaller or, you know, uh, much more uh, inward thinking in terms of uh, the types of people that are there. But also, you know, these these people who work at, at Nestle and other companies, their parents, you know, their children, they're, they're, they and they ultimately want the best uh, for themselves and their family and for society as well. Not everyone does, obviously, and we've all got different political opinions and, and all the rest. But so when I've got, so when I'm kind of doing my job and I really want to make sure that we're doing the right thing, whether it be working with social enterprises or bringing on board more suppliers that are led by women or ethnic minorities or people with disabilities, that that kind of thing. Um, it, what, I, what I try and do is try and... Uh, in an ideal world, is to, is I know that fifty percent of the people I talk to are going to get it straight away. And the way I look at it is, fifty percent you have to they get in with their hearts. The other fifty percent they need to be persuaded in terms of their brains, and therefore you need to come up with. I need to come up with the argument, commercial argument, as to why we. I think this is the right thing to do, and uh, if if I can do that, if I can both come up with the, both the, the head and the heart argument then that usually is enough to to sway sway things i mean mm. the other thing is you, you look for allies uh, and you've touched on this i think in some of your other podcasts i think other people so there's again wait i love that you've listened to my podcast rob and this is so awesome <laughs> like, you can you can reference my past episode i'm just like oh yeah of course because i'm so famous yeah. like that because <laughs> Because you know, you know, I mean, collaboration is key, and the, uh, it, you touched on it earlier. And I was in charge of our supplier collaboration program when I was at, at Safeway, and, and because collaboration really is only the, the is the way that you're really going to make a, a difference in whatever mm-hmm. you're trying to do, and that's you know, and the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals number seventeen, the last one is all about collaboration and partnerships. But you find those allies, those people in the organisation that think the same way as you. Invariably, they then will know someone. Maybe they're in more senior levels or in, in positions where decision making um, uh, is important. So there's that. There's also in terms of your values, and one of the things that I I, I actively try to do is try and get to know your colleagues because because the, and one of the shames with COVID actually is you can't go to the pub anymore. But that actually is one way, believe it or not, of really getting to know people well. Because once you start to get to know their values and what drives them, it actually helps you when you are trying to come up with um, an argument or trying to get the company to 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 change its position on something and maybe, you know, 
cause them to think about what's uncomfortable uh, because it's very easy to do th- this mm. things the same way you've always done them but all of these kind of just knowing the right allies knowing what the values that other people have got all helps to just to, to create that kind of momentum I suppose to, to get to do what I want to do. Uh, you've drawn together so many good points there about it's about actually being human it's about being emotionally intelligent but also that that piece about putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and understanding what motivates them and quite often when you do that you have to think of them as a human you can't just you can't just think of them as some faceless other that you disagree with and and that's a really really important message right now because there is so much polarization based on yeah. nationalities or covid or politics and just remembering to pause take a breath and remember Try to try to put yourself in the other person's shoes. The world would be a very different yeah. place if we all did that moment to moment. But it does help exactly. navigate uncomfortable moments. And also, I know how well. I know that you are a safe pair of hands. You have a great reputation internally in the company, and people trust you because you are good at your job. And it gives you influence to continually do things better and to really help the company to do things better. And you have a lot of great colleagues trying to do the same i know so yeah but it's that empathy and that sort of softness of being human in your work that i think drives you far robin (laughs) yeah thank you but as you said i mean most 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 people are no one's out there to try and do a bad job or you know and if if they disagree and sometimes sometimes my values uh, as you said sometimes i don't get what i want uh, but as long as i've tried i feel in myself that i've tried uh, to to get people to understand sometimes the commercial argument just doesn't work and ultimately it isn't the right thing uh, for us to do or the decision is made as long as i feel felt i've been heard then uh, then i'm comfortable i think um if that didn't happen then i would uh, that's when you really struggle and I think most people most people who I think a lot of people who are struggling in their business wherever they work invariably it comes down to their values or their morals are somehow not working out with what's happening I think and um, and that's when you've got to ask yourself the question is this the right place for me if that isn't quite uh, working out yeah, because I think what comes through strongly with you is you do have a very strong sense of your personal values and direction, and you make that work in the context in which you are. And a lot of people right now, particularly because the personal and the professional is so intertwined, because we're all working from home, we're all thinking, what is the point of what I do? Um, but it might be time to change jobs for people who are struggling with that, or there might be a way to bring your values to work more in a way that you hadn't previously thought of or find your internal allies. And before we we hit record on this, we were talking about, I was sharing my, um, I like to get things done very fast and I have a certain way that I like to live my values in my work. And so it it did feel like I just don't necessarily fit well in-house in large corporates because, or government even, the pace of change is slower than I would like to move. So there is a certain amount of pacing and patience and being able to navigate within the structure you're in that you clearly have mastered and I admire. So I think I'm just thinking of people who might be listening to this and, you know, they're in a corporate job or maybe they work for local government or, you know, a business that might not be one that's 
a social enterprise or, or driven apparently by you know values or a, a social impact. So how do how do people find comfort with pacing and values, and and how do they make maybe some of the compromises they need to make? Um, how do they bring themselves fully to their work if they don't want to find another job? You know, like how to what advice would you give to somebody in that position? It's a good question. I think it really does. It comes down to I think some of it is company culture, uh, and uh, I mean you know what it's like in our business. But the culture is is a very people focused culture, which helps. And now we you know we. The, we talk about bring your true self to work. It used to be years ago is that you would be told, you would be told um, you've got your work life and you've got your home life. Yeah. And if you think about it, it's just, that's mad, isn't it? It's like you've got a dual, <laughs> dual personality. And, um, but that's what you used to do. It's like, oh, if you've got yeah. problems at home, leave them at home. Oh, my and, first boss said, leave your personal life at the door. And, and that was like 18 years ago. That wasn't even that long ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I, I, I just, I, I encourage people. I encourage people in our business, and, and particularly the young people who, who start new. I say, I say to them, you can, you can be a leader. It just doesn't matter what level you are. You can still be a leader in this organization if you find something you truly believe in and you think is the right thing for this organization. Yeah. But, Get your allies together. Come up with your your proposal. Talk to talk to me or, or whoever. But get get um, yeah get get out of your comfort zone because invariably and show and try and show a bit of courage because invariably, I think large businesses and sometimes actually can be better for this is that there will be someone who who is um, will understand what, what it is you're trying to achieve mm. and you can but to your question about pace things do not you, you yeah I think some people are more suited to the slower pace of life in a, in a corporate than others and I'm I'm I think I'm lucky as you know I've been in this this is my 26th year in the company and um and I think that pace of life uh, maybe now I'm starting to slow down a bit too much <laughs> now I'm in my 50s and I, I, my the younger people at work when they see me trying to type is just uh, <laughs> I've uh, witnessed you typing, Robin. It's not that bad. <laughs> but uh, it's um, in terms of yeah, that pace and, and uh, I would, I would encourage. And I think now this it's a really interesting time in the world, and I think in corporate businesses, actually, is that yes, we've got the whole climate change thing going on, and I'm sure we'll come on to it when we talk about our milk farmers. But mm -hmm. but also the social aspect, so much happening, whether it's Black Black Lives Matters or the Me Too movement, and and every, everything else, and LGBT plus and organizations are really trying to get to grips with how can we let people be be themselves and we our company i have to admit is doing amazing stuff around this and we've got we've got an eradicating racism network that came out the, of the back of the george floyd murder and the black lives matter movement we've got 110 people in that network and the first thing we did i mean we've got white allies in there as well as um you know people um from ethnic backgrounds but we said you know it's no longer the first thing they went out and said to the business is it's no longer good enough to be um uh it, to be not to not be a racist you've got to be actively anti-racist mm. and we talked about white privilege and we had a session online session which 800 people dialed into onto this webinar wow. to, and it was an all-day thing about how can we um 
really start to make a difference here. But the first thing that we talked about was we need to be able to have these uncomfortable conversations because a lot of people want to say the right thing, but they don't know. They don't want to say the wrong thing or you can get, you know, you've talked again I'm going to, in previous podcasts about <laughs> the importance of language and language is, is so important. But I personally think sometimes it gets, it can derail things. People are so concerned about what they say, but they don't say anything at all. And yeah. Brene Brown talks a lot about that, about being willing to get it wrong, but just yes. so you can get it right. But you yeah. have to be brave enough to get it wrong first. Yeah. Yeah. And I think these larger organizations like our, like ours are really becoming much more open about having those conversations and really understanding what that means for the business. Because ultimately, if you've got a happier workforce, obviously you're going to do better as an organization, but actually it makes you more attractive in terms of new talent as well. So there, there's really good business but and actually there's loads of data to show that you're gonna you do you get less sickness and you get you get more productive and all of those things there's plenty of data out there that shows that but you don't need to look at the data you just I, I know my company and with COVID has been again absolutely brilliant in managing the, the workforce and you can just you can tell when people are happy in an organization, not everyone's going to be happy, particularly when you've got 350,000 people working in, in, a, in a company. But, <laughs> um, yep. but generally speaking, that you know, and when you hear stories about what other companies have done, it kind of makes you realize, actually, yeah, my, my company has, has done a good job. But I, I, I think in a roundabout way, the answer to your question is, if you can... Uh, it, I think you do have to, some you know, for you, it wasn't right. As you said, it, it, you're not a corporate person, but uh, for a lot of people, it is right. And, uh, and, and then it's just a case of navigating your way through and being able to, to find the people, as I said, who will support you uh, in, in what it is you're trying to achieve. Yeah. And I think my realization that it just wasn't the pace for me is probably a valuable one for a lot of people of sometimes it's having an experience that shows you what you're not and where you don't fit in very well or a pace that isn't for you that is so enlightening because up till my experience working for Nestle UK I had always worked in organizations that were filled with you know kind of people like me and while that's very comfortable it isn't the mirror that kind of knocks off your edges and really shows you who you are. So I still actually count my time at Nestle as super valuable. And honestly, some of the best colleagues I've ever had are people like you at Nestle, which is a controversial thing for somebody who's now like a sustainability author and leader <laughs> to say. But I really, I really can't handle dogma or knee jerk stuff. So I'm glad that I was there because it, it gives me um, something that I have to explain to people that can hopefully be useful in judging yeah. things differently, you know, judging big corporates based on a different understanding of their people in there. Yeah. And there's a lot of capacity to do good. See, I'm yeah. waffling on now. <laughs> well, I, I, think, think, yeah. I think one of the reasons for that is that um, you do, you do have to have humility and, uh, and we know that we're, 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 you know, we're not perfect, but it's just trying, trying to, to improve and, you know, companies like ours and we're not the only ones, you know, in the last 40 years when we've seen such an increase in consumerism and we've been part of that, but everybody has. And mm -hmm. so the increase in plastics and the degradation to the soils that we've done and, and the rivers and, and all of the, 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 the pollution and everything that has happened. Yes, we've been part of that, but 
but um but at least the realization is there now i think in 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 a lot of businesses the next 10 years are completely vital uh, in terms of how we turn things around and when you've got large organizations like ours we buy 1% of the world's agricultural output we've got a huge environmental footprint as well as a social footprint but our commitments around getting to net zero you know uh, recycling of, of all our packaging reusable all of that are uh, a the, the business is 100% committed to it but b when we we can actually make a difference so yes we've been part of the the past that's caused the issue in the first place but actually we we can and will be an active part of the solution as well mm. and and those uncomfortable conversations that we need to have whether it be ngos governments consumers civil society have to be had because ultimately uh, no, you know, everyone needs to work together to make this happen. So, yeah. so, so yeah, those those conversations, as as uncomfortable as they are, just really need to happen. And I, my 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 feeling is is that they are starting to happen. I because I also have I saw that update about Nestle making a commitment to you know really drastically reducing its packaging and and impact. And my uncomfortable comment is. That's a long way away, <laughs> the target date. And so I think it is also about then saying, yes, and good job, but could we do it sooner? Because we really need to, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and those of us, you know, people like me who are on the outside and have chosen to stay on the outside being like, oh, come on, let's nudge. Let's go a little faster. We're not going to relax now. So, yeah, there are more uncomfortable conversations to be had. There is no comfort zone. If you're in a comfort zone, that's boring. That's you know not powering forward, yeah. but yeah, yeah, and and we we do organisations like ours do need to be held to account, and and I it's it's a good thing that we have the NGOs out there and all the rest because you know we have to we have to. Um, uh, you know, if we make commitments, we have to come through them. And if we're not making commitments, you've got to ask the question, why aren't you making commitments? And there are a lot of companies who keep their heads <laughs> under the parapet. And uh, and those are some of the ones that maybe are getting away with stuff. And uh, uh, and maybe there needs to be more focus on those. But I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, f- five years to get to uh, to get all your plastic to plastic. Uh, you know, all your packaging to recyclable, reusable mm-hmm. sounds like a long time. But when you think we're selling a billion products a day around the world, you think of how much packaging, you think of all the all the suppliers that are involved, all the innovation that's required. Um, there's thousands of suppliers. And you yeah. think of all of the different individual bits. You just think of like, you know, a packet of Quality Street, a tin of Quality Street, think of all of the different, just, that's just one product, mm-hmm. how much packaging. It's, um, it's a big job. So that's why why five years may seem like a long time, but when you're in it, that five years is going to go very quickly. And this is the value of these conversations because I'm going to give my evil activist chuckle and be like, ha, 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 we'll try, we'll push. But And then there are the people like you whose job it is to actually help speed that up or, or meet it in five years because it is a mammoth task. I acknowledge that. But I love that you are, you do acknowledge we all have a place in our ecosystem of influence and pushing to make the world a better place and then actually fighting to survive as humankind because you've talked about environmental impact. Um, And yeah, it's, I think this is the kind of conversation that gets had a lot more than people appreciate. And I, I really hope people listening get this, that this is the kind of conversation that people like us have a lot where it's an activist and a campaigner and a corporate guy 
talking about this stuff in yes. in real like I realize you need to take time to make responsible innovations because we see it in things like ugh bioplastics a lot of a lot of companies just tick a box and they're like ooh that sounds good and don't actually realize the unintended consequences of like bioplastics are not largely recyclable. They still end up in landfill or in an incinerator. So you can't just make a jump. And I think that's what a lot of people who are impatient and are impatient, impatient (laughs) and eager to see things happen. Don't appreciate this stuff is really complex and it takes a lot of effort to do well. So, yeah. 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 yeah, and ultimately they're businesses that are trying to make money as well, so there can be commercial consequences. You know, uh, the example I always think of is we were the first company to reduce all the packaging on our Easter eggs, uh, and we took a whole load out. But when, but the competition didn't do that. So when our Easter eggs sat on the shelves, and they just they were the same size as the other eggs, but they were they looked smaller because all the packaging was gone. Our sales went through the floor <laughs> compared yeah. to previous yeah. years. Is, you know, and we thought we were doing the right thing, and yeah. uh, so there, there's the commercial element still has to be a part of it as well. It is a fine dance because yeah, you exist in a commercial ecosystem in which your competitors have to be doing the same thing for it to work in a way. And yeah. I remember um, there are you know three or four. I don't want to insult anyone, but pretty good food, large food companies in the world. And Oxfam used to do it behind the brand scorecard where they ranked them all based on publicly available information. And it was always a one-two dance between Unilever and Nestle. And people Mm. were always surprised by that. But then there were the, you know, a couple of others, you know, Mars, Crow, whatever, all the others, I won't name check them all. But it was, nobody else was even within reach. So it wasn't that there was a race to the top. It was that there's this handful of companies who are visible and big and trying to do a good job. And the others are just kind of squeaking by and nobody's paying attention to them. And therefore they often are really not doing much. And that's one to keep in mind of like, look, who's not speaking up, look, who's not being attacked and maybe like, under the surface of those things and that's uncomfortable i might get sued for this conversation but <laughs> i'm not going to name any names it's, this- it's true though and then the vast majority of organizations are smes anyway and yeah. uh, yes uh, from an environmental perspective maybe they're not having as much uh, uh, individually but you add them all up and it, it's significant and things like modern slavery you know you've got the modern slavery act if you're turning over more than 36 million you report on what you're doing but the majority of companies aren't you know they're below that but they may well still be um uh, well they probably are recipients of modern slavery further up the supply chain but they're not they've got no idea and often people get outraged about things they read in the news about things that are happening in far off places when it comes to Slavery, you know, child slavery or child labor in supply chains when actually these things are happening quite close to home. And that is so uncomfortable that I think a lot of us just can't handle that. It it really doesn't sit well when we think, oh, wow, there's a sweatshop in the north of England where people are making clothing that I buy. And it's right under our noses. And Oh, yeah. uh, I I work with a few people who work with sort of smaller ethical like beauty brands, for example, and they really, they struggle to be very thorough in their approach because they are small and they don't have a lot of resource. And so it ends up, you know, maybe they don't have the greatest impact on some things in some ways because they just don't have the economic ability to do so. Yeah. So, yeah, it's that dance of the big can be quite, quite 
impactful, either way, good or bad. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Let's talk about sourcing. I want to talk about the milk plan because you know me, it's one of my favorite <laughs> things. So you, you kind of really got rolling on this when I worked with you. And I remember just yeah. loving it. And I know that this is close to your heart. This is a program that you actually just completely love and have helped create. So yeah, talk about the milk plan and some of the impact that it's had already. And just those stories of UK dairy farmers that you've worked with and, and how they've reduced their impact and how you've worked with them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, coming back to I suppose discomfort. I mean, and uh, I mean the first thing was, I was when I was given the role by my my previous uh, uh, head of procurement at the time, Brett, who to this day is still, I think one of the best. You know, oh, loved working for Brett. Um, and if he's listening, shout out to Brett. He um, he thought I could do this role working with farmers. I'd never come close to farmers. The closest I got to farming was I got married at the Royal Agricultural College. <laughs> and uh, and um, and uh, in terms of discomfort, so that was completely new. So I was going into something completely new. But then I, you know, again, challenge the organization. We used to every every month we would negotiate the price, and it was a very uh, I don't know trans. It's a very transactional relationship. And I and I just asked the question. I said, "We've got our milk. We've got our factories here in the middle of these milk fields because milk is absolutely is the main ingredient in so in these products." Like you know. When people don't realize when they have a Kit Kat, it's Scottish milk or a quality street. Mm -hmm. When they're having their cappuccinos, Nescafe cappuccinos, it's it's milk from Cumbria. And those factories are there for those milk fields. So I, I kind of just said, why are we negotiating and having this transaction? We need to have a partnership here and we need to work actively with our farmers to really make a difference, both environmentally and socially in terms of their impact. So let's make this a, a long-term thing. And... Um, and so from that, we started working with the Allerton Project, which is, again, a fantastic organization who really understand farmers and their farmers themselves. And we, we sat down with First Milk, who are, the, who are the, the cooperative that the farmers work for, and we just said, how can we come up with a, a payment mechanism that pays a premium um, to our farmers? And they, they get the premium because they're meeting all our really high kind of animal welfare standards and um, traceability, transparency standards, all the things that I always say are non-negotiable. They have to be achieved. But we'll pay a premium to make sure we get that. But then can we pay a premium on top, a sustainability bonus to implement a whole host of things, whether it be hedgerows or fencing off waterways so that you're trying to stop pollution or planting trees or, uh, and and these kinds of things and so we came up with this idea it was going to cost us a bit more but I took it back to the business and again uncomfortable conversations but but um, was able to persuade the business and again this is why this is to your point earlier Betsy about large business if if they can actually make a difference if they, because of the scale that they're at. And we were able to, um, we said, well, let's give this a try. Let's let's try this new pricing mechanism. We also, at the same time, agreed to put in a floor, a floor price. So if the market price of milk crashed, we would not go below this price because we wanted to protect our farmers. And sure enough, within a year of us putting that in, milk prices did crash around the UK and we completely looked after our farmers through that for a whole year. We've maintained the price for a year. And um, and so those, uh, 
but off the back of it, we've seen some fantastic improvements in terms of our farmers' um, environmental impacts, particularly around habitats and biodiversity, because, you know, we've got way more hedgerows there. We've got way more stone walls. Um, the pollution uh, off the farms is starting to come down the, uh, because of the runoff, because of the, the fencing, so mm. we're in a we're in a good place with the farmers. What I'm really excited about, and again, more uh, I suppose um, uncomfortable conversations has been around how can we really make a difference with our carbon impact. And one thing a lot of people don't realise, but if you've watched Kiss the Ground, the uh, Netflix documentary, mm. you, you will see it. That, shows brilliantly that there's actually more carbon in the ground than there is in the atmosphere. But in the last 40 years, because of farming practices, we've accelerated that release of that carbon into the atmosphere because of the way we till the ground mm. and, and, and all the rest. But the, we, the, but the opposite is true, is that we can actually capture, we can take that carbon out of the atmosphere and we can put it back in the ground if we can change our farming practices. So we, you may have heard the term regenerative agriculture. That probably doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people. I like to call it nature-friendly agriculture. Mm. And it's just, it's just going back to how things used to be. You know, you plant cover crops. You try not to disturb the ground too much. You don't use natural fertilizers like um, manure. You know, you don't use herbicides, pesticides. You move to more natural solutions. And that's what we're going to be doing. But particularly for our dairy farmers, there is so much that grassland that they don't really do much with. The cows eat it. Um, but that Grassland has huge opportunity to store carbon, uh, and uh, and that's what we're going to be working on. I'm really excited because we've got we you know we we've as a company we've committed billions of pounds in the next ten years to around regenerative agriculture. We're going to be using some of that funding to um, to work with our farmers to really drive that forward. Really excited about that. Yeah, it's also a great explanation of carbon and carbon sequestration and just how important the green stuff under our feet or lack of it is in the places that we live, like the UK. Yeah, I love that. And I also love how your your farmers have gotten super loyal, haven't they? Because they realize yeah. you, you've taken care of them. I remember, yeah. wasn't yeah, there they're... one who had a milking parlor or milk parlor with um, a Kit Kat emblazoned on it somewhere or something? <laughs> well, yeah, no, he, what, what he did was he's, he, above the milking parlor, he, he built a, a viewing gallery. And so he does school children visits all, I mean, these school children before COVID anyway, mm. were constantly coming around. So we paid just a small amount of money um, to, for, to tell the story of how the, the milk gets into a Kit Kat. So, so these children come around and they see the milking going on and then they just, they understand. And this is really, really important is how do we get the next generation, particularly, um, you know, for people, for, uh, I mean, in, in my, when I was younger, you would always get out to farm. Didn't matter if you went to a school in, in a city like I did, but now for health and safety reasons, budgeting reasons, all the rest, children just aren't getting out to farm. So many children don't understand where their food comes from. Mm -hmm. So we're actively doing a lot around how do we get children to understand um, where, where their food is coming from. Yeah, I see that. Well, obviously, people like Jamie Oliver have long been doing things on like helping kids to understand that potatoes come from the ground and that's where chips come from. But yeah, this connection to our food and our environment is so important to raise a generation of people who understand the importance of our environment and our connection to all beings and all things. But yeah, yeah. I, I really, I love that actually. So, what 
keeps you personally uncomfortable in your personal life, in your work life, whatever? Like, what's your actual discomfort practice? Are you a meditator? Do you exercise? What is what keeps you on the edge of your comfort zone in a really productive way? I, I have recently get started to get into uh, meditation. Actually, L- low levels. Um, that uh, one of the apps. Uh, I probably shouldn't name them, but one of the apps. Go ahead. I'm finding. <laughs> Which one? Yeah, oh, it's calm. Calm. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. People love that one. I, I like the the voice of um, uh, the person who does it, but uh, yeah, I, I'm really getting into that. Actually, that's um, that's uh, uh, a good way. And now my kids are get a bit older. There, I've got the time. Uh, to do it as well and then covid helps as well yeah it, things like um uh, yeah mindfulness and meditation uh, and actually i'm not the fittest person in the world so actually i've started to do that uh, a bit of running low scale running <laughs> low and, level meditating uh, low scale running Robin, i think you're probably giving yourself too little credit but yeah <laughs> and my, my wife is really into pilates and we found this brilliant um person who, who does uh, pilates on screen so every morning now we wake up and we kind of force each other uh, to to do it to do one of the classes and that uh, that definitely uh, keeps me on the edge that's for sure <laughs> yeah and with lockdown I mean everybody's kind of in their edge at all times so it's sort of yeah how do you how do you deal with the edginess of being kind of locked into your house but yeah that sounds really productively yeah. uncomfortable yeah in terms of in terms of um you know society and what's going on and and opposing viewpoints i am trying harder now just to uh like i used to in the past actually is you know not read headlines as much but try and understand you know if uh the opposing perspectives and some of the political things that are going on and, and maybe the way that that Brexit has been managed in this country and elsewhere, yes, um, I'm trying to, instead of just being very staunch, it's all been done wrong, and same with Brexit, I've got a very clear view on Brexit, but I am trying harder just to understand the, the other viewpoint, uh, which which has got harder, I think, uh, because of social media and all the rest. Mm. It's it's got harder, and it used to be easier in my younger days. But uh, that's something I'm I am making an effort to try and understand the other other people's viewpoint a bit more, even if I don't necessarily agree with it. You talked a bit about like the need to have uncomfortable conversations because it's so easy in the age of social media, and I, it's been in every age. It was easy to just hurl hot, you know headlines at each other or just throw rocks at each other in the past, and now with social media, it's so often just an assault from one side to the other rather than a, a conversation. So, what uncomfortable conversations would you like people to be having right now? Um, good question. I would. <laughs> I would like to. I would still like to see more conversation around climate change. I think, I think more and more. I think people are starting to realise it is happening. So, uh, the, I think that de- the climate change deniers are um, fewer, uh, but they but they still exist. But I'd like to ha- see a bit more of a a conversation. You kind of touched on it earlier in terms of. The different players, the different organizations being able to, because there's a lot of people, a lot of organizations who've got their vested interests. So I'm finding this is that, for instance, I'll give you an example. One of our farmers was trying to do the right thing by by planting a bunch of trees. And he was told by uh, the advisors who who are tree experts that he, he could do that. So he did it. He then, somebody came, came along, took photos of... Uh, 
of what he'd done. And basically, he'd um, that had been a wildflower meadow in the past. And then suddenly there's this huge Twitter storm about how these wildflower meadows had been uh, taken apart because the trees were being planted. And this poor farmer is in the middle of it and all he's trying to do is his mm. best, you know. And and there's there are, there are so many different interests and I would love to see more of a conversation that allows uh, uh, us to see look more holistically at the things that we need to do between business, NGOs, farmers, all the people that have, have an interest. And I know it's hard um, to do, but I would love to see more of a conversation yeah. around that. I would also, you touched on it earlier, but I'd like to see a much bigger conversation about modern slavery in the UK and really get to the bottom of what do we need to do to stop it? Because the problem is that these gang masters, it, it's so easy for them to just to do what they do and move people around because there isn't enough focus on on the victims and and how that they're becoming victims and again a lot of businesses are so scared of even talking about it because if it is identified or uncovered somewhere in their supply chain they're concerned that their brand yeah. is going to be targeted and so because there's that yeah because there is that fear of being uh, in the newspapers, oh, there's modern slavery in that supply chain. I think it's stopping businesses from actively looking at that. And, and it's a growing issue and COVID, I think, has made it, well, I know, has made it worse. So I'd like to see more of a conversation there. And then thirdly, my, my favorite topic, social mobility. We are, the inequalities are getting worse in this country. And there are so many kids who have got who've definitely got the the intelligence they've got the knowledge they've got the ideas but they just don't know that uh, i mean my old friend mick um mick jackson who was on your podcast says it really well he says not only are they not on the bottom rung of the ladder but they don't even know the ladder exists and it's and it's how do we get these young people again covid is making things worse and so many of them had still don't have access to to the technology to allow them to to do the schooling and um and so i would like to see a, a much more robust conversation around what can we really do to to level that playing field oh man just a few little issues there but yeah you've raised <laughs> some really really meaty ones and also i like that you just called out that we're not really having the uncomfortable conversations around that and and I guess it's for each of us to sit with the discomfort of where do we sit in that? How can we influence that? How can we push for those conversations? Or I don't know. I don't even know. You know, I'm not in a, a, a place to push on a lot of those conversations myself, which drives me crazy because I'm such an activist. But just being aware that they need to be had is something. And starting to create a momentum around you talk to your friends or you talk to people at work. Yes. And if everybody were to do that around certain uncomfortable conversations it would eventually become a conversation that needed to be had i think yeah but i i'm, I'm an optimist uh, i do think it can happen so you know when i was much younger if you you couldn't admit that you were gay and that and now you know the, the world is well in some countries at least the world has, has changed significantly and i have very clear memories i was watching dallas with my parents in 1979 and uh, and lucy ewing found out her boyfriend he said to her i'm gay and um and i remember turning around to my dad and saying what does that mean and my dad kind of 
I, he fobbed me off with he didn't say anything really and of course so the first thing I did is I went upstairs went to my dictionary and looked it up and uh, and it was the first I was 12 years old and first realization that that this thing even existed that two men could be together or two women and and now my children yeah they, they're watching tv they watch modern family and all the rest and it's completely normal for them to 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 expect gay relationships as part of normal life and so i think i think those uncomfortable conversations can be had and and history tells us that it, it can change there is a lot to be hopeful about, isn't there? I love your optimism. And, and actually, that was going to be my last <laughs> question, which is what is there to be hopeful about? What else is there to be hopeful about? Let's end with a, a, a flourish. What else is there to be hopeful about? It, well, I, I'll go back to big business. I think I honestly believe that a lot of big businesses are doing the right things and moving in the right direction on a on and really helping to achieve the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So there's 17 goals there that go right from cultural, uh, sorry, social to economic to in, uh, uh, environmental, and there's a lot of prog progression starting to happen. I, I, there's obviously a long way to go, but that language of the SDGs is becoming becoming more commonplace in business. So when we talk to the likes of Tesco and Sainsbury's or we're talking to our suppliers, it's becoming more and more prominent. And uh, and these next 10 years, everyone knows that they are uh, they're, they're essential. And what makes me optimistic is that the investment community is starting to get behind it. So the major shareholders of big companies like Nestle and Unilever and Danone and, and others are getting it as well. So it makes those business decisions those around sustainability, uh, it makes those decisions easier. Yeah. So, so that's what I'm really optimistic about. That's beautiful to actually hear that from inside the super tanker that is Nestle, because a lot of people won't be having these conversations or know that. So let's leave people with that. There are lots of things to be hopeful about from big, big behemoths of organizations that people might automatically hate, but just remember they're made up of good people. And those people have hope. And those people are trying to do good things and are actually doing good things. So Robin, it has been an absolute pleasure to host you on this podcast. Thank you so much for your time. And I can't wait to see what happens next. Yeah, no, thanks, Betsy. It's been a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Thank you to my team who helped me produce this podcast, to my brilliant editor, Dimitar Tvedkov, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, and to Luis Amaro for the original artwork. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help me reach new listeners by leaving me a five-star and written review on Apple Podcasts, following me on Spotify, or anywhere else you love to listen to podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at TheBetsyRead, that's B-E-T-S-Y-R-E-E-D. If you're interested in bonus episodes and guided meditations I record regularly, head over to patreon.com and become a supporter. For the price of a coffee each month, you get access to a community. So there's really only one thing left to say. Thank you for spending time with me. Stay uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs>